please be seated. The uh, scripture reading for today is from Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. It's Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. And um, as you're turning there in your Bibles, uh, I just wanted to say that I'm very grateful to be able to be back up here again and uh, have an opportunity to preach. So I'm I'm very thankful to Dan and the session for uh, this time to to be back here again. Um, A lot of great memories from my internship here over the years, so it's uh, good to relive some of those. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God." Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work is work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Please pray with me. God, our Father, uh, we're thankful for this word that you speak to us this morning. I pray uh, that through your Spirit's presence within us that uh, we would hear you speak to us. Uh, that we would uh, not only hear it, but that it would enter into the very recesses of our soul, that we might be drawn into a closer relationship with you, that we might be transformed as people, and that we might learn to love you, our God, evermore. We thank you in Christ's name, in whom we come before you this day. Amen. So this morning, as uh, we were looking at this passage from Ephesians, uh, I want us to consider this. Uh, What would it mean as people of God uh, to have a strength that is capable of surmounting whatever circumstances that we might face? In the midst of the uh, the ever-varying conditions of this life, uh, how can we continue to possess a sense of peace and joy in the midst of those troubles? And I know that I've, I've shared this uh, in a sermon before, but I think one of the most impactful experiences of my internship at Westminster uh, was almost two years ago now, um, the summer of 2015, uh, when Dan and I got to spend some time with uh, Marsha Petrarca before she passed away from cancer that fall. And the thing that I really take away from the moments of visiting her, uh, both in her home and then in hospice care uh, in the weeks prior to her passing, uh, was the poise that Marcia had. Uh, The faithfulness and peace that she exhibited whenever we were around her. And uh, I'm sure that this was really uh, one of the most difficult, uh, probably the, obviously the most difficult experiences of her life, um, is really to becoming... uh, face-to-face with your own impending mortality. And as I walked away uh, from these visits, I remember thinking to myself, you know, God, I wish that I could be able to face suffering like this woman is here, because honestly, if I were in her position, I would probably be an emotional wreck right now. Um, And so what was so sobering to me was uh, the reality that 
um, I could not probably face my own mortality in this way. The passage that we're looking at here in Ephesians is a prayer that Paul offers on behalf of his readers as someone who knows the secret to finding peace and joy in life, no matter the circumstances. Ephesians is a very peculiar letter among Paul's epistles. If, if you read it or um, if you had to do what I did in seminary and translate it from the Greek, and it's because it's filled with moments like this where theological argument, uh, you think of Paul's letters as being very kind of tightly uh, argued works, where that argument kind of blends with devotional piety into a kind of writing that I don't know how to describe other than to say that it's almost a a kind of mystical form of writing. What I mean is that Paul writes in such a way that he leads us to experience for ourselves the profound and personal experience that he has had of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's prayer here is intended to model for us a way of devotionally appropriating for our own lives uh, what it is he has been arguing for thus far in his letter, which is really a our union, our mystical union with Jesus Christ. And so specifically what Paul is modeling for us in this prayer is the secret to finding that poise and peace in the midst of those difficult places of our lives. Think of those areas in your life right now uh, where you're experiencing what it means to live life in a fallen world. Maybe you're experiencing a relational discord of some kind uh, amongst family members, friends, a spouse. Maybe your suffering is from a chronic illness of some kind. Maybe it's just the breakdown that comes with old age. Or maybe uh, it's the anguish of having a form of mental illness that you suffer with. Or perhaps it's just a general anxiety that you feel from the darkness that's present in our local community through something like the opioid crisis, or maybe just a general unease about uh, general situations in the world around us. In the case of Paul's audience, uh, their suffering came both from a relational discord that existed within the Ephesian community, uh, and also from an external hostility of some kind that was directed uh, from their neighbors towards them. And then moreover, they have just learned that Paul, uh, the founder of their church, um, a person that they uh, looked up to greatly, is now languishing in prison, probably in Rome somewhere. And so they're palpably aware of the sufferings that come from living within a fallen world at this point. And up to this time, Paul has uh, addressed this situation uh, through a form of theological argument concerning what it is that his audience should believe. But now, Paul kind of switches gears here and turns to prayer on behalf of uh, the community that he's writing to and is asking them uh, that in the midst of the problems that they are facing, that they would acquire from God the strength to endure their suffering well. A strength that is granted to God, uh, granted from God to us in our inner being, Paul writes. And this inner strength is uh, really the secret, Paul writes, uh, to finding lasting peace in this life. Peace that is not an absence of suffering, but the presence of hope and joy, even in the midst of suffering. And so this morning, I want us to look at two uh, questions connected to this passage. Uh, First, what is this inner strength that Paul is talking about? And then secondly, how do we get it? 
So what is inner strength? How do we get inner strength? So first of all, inner strength is simply this. It's a stability in life that is not dependent upon external circumstances. Rather, possessing this kind of strength means possessing something inside of us that remains constant even as our external world is in a state of constant change. In his understanding of the human person, Paul, uh, really like many um, spiritual thinkers throughout time, makes this key distinction between the inner and outer self of the human person. The outer self, uh, you can think of as that external physical part of ourselves that is mortal, that's subject to decay and suffering and ultimately one day to death. But the inner self, on the other hand, is our interior life. It's the soul, the core of our very being, the seat of our personality, and the fundamental source of our identity as persons. And this is where Paul says we find a true strength that can surmount the ups and downs of external circumstance in life. And this is because inner strength is fundamentally a matter of our inward orientation towards external circumstances, no matter what they are. But unlike other spiritual teachers throughout time, and especially uh, those in his own day, such as the Stoics, who said that inner peace comes from having a stiff upper lip approach to life, uh, Paul teaches something radically different about the source of our inner strength. He says that though this inner strength is something that we find within us, it is not something that comes from within us. Rather, as Paul relates in 2 Corinthians 2, inner peace comes from the fact that although our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Because, he writes, in these jars of clay, in our frail and mortal bodies, we possess an eternal treasure. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ completely reorients your inner life by connecting it directly to a hope that transcends circumstances. This is what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount when he taught his disciples not to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but instead to lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, everything that belongs to our outer selves is subject to change and decay which means that everything in this life will eventually at some point fade and perish. Here's just one example. If you are a physically attractive person, uh, or if you are uh, an athletic person, uh, you are going to suffer the loss of these external qualities one day. Your beauty is going to fade, your body is going to break down with age, and so if you peg all of your happiness on these external qualities you're going to be facing an an identity crisis one day as you grow old. Uh, If you want a a good example of this, think about those uh, existential struggles that professional athletes have uh, when they reach that point where they're getting past their prime. For instance, uh, whenever I was in college, I'm sure you remember this, there were those several seasons of the NFL where there was this annual circus regarding whether or not uh, the great quarterback Brett Favre was going to finally stay retired or whether he would come back out of retirement for another season. 
And far if you remember, he would retire at the end of one season, only to, at the very last minute, come back out of retirement uh, at the end of the new season. And Favre candidly confessed, as you know, this went on for several years and kind of became ridiculous, he, he confessed that the reason is that he couldn't stick with his decision to stay retired for the entire summer uh, because he felt that he was compelled to play. He couldn't stand not to play. Even though his physical ability to actually perform on a professional level was rapidly diminishing from old age, he kept playing, even though it was really painfully obvious uh, in his last season that he was effectively a joke at this point, because he couldn't reconcile himself to the idea of not doing the thing that had given his life meaning for two decades. You see, athletic stars like Favre uh, place all of their happiness in their performance, and so they can't face living in a world where they have lost the ability to perform. And this is not true only of athletes uh, with tremendous uh, physical strength, uh, but of any external quality that we ourselves might have or any external object that we might possess. So much of our anxiety from life, if we really think about it, comes from the fact that we put all of our trust in these earthly treasures that we cannot rely on and which do not ultimately last. And so if you put your trust in any of these external circumstances, you're going to be constantly afraid of what will happen if they fade and perish, and you'll be absolutely broken and depressed when they finally do. One day, your mental faculties will begin to wane. Another person's star will rise higher than yours and overshadow you. Your accomplishments will be forgotten with time. Your relationships that you prize will pass away right on down the list. But having a true inner strength means that your soul is not fixated on the transient, but on the eternal. We look not to the things that are seen, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And because of this fundamental inward orientation of the heart towards the unchanging one, Paul can say that we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. But what is the source of this inner strength? What what does it mean to be fixed on the eternal? Well, Paul says here in verse 19 that it is out of the riches of God's glory that he will grant you to be strengthened with power in your inner being. Now, if you've been around the church for any length of time, particularly uh, in reform circles like we are, uh, the glory of God is a catchphrase that we use quite a bit And as often the case with phrases that we use over and over again, uh, we can maybe become insensitive to the meaning of that phrase. So what does it mean when the Bible talks about the glory of God? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod, which literally translates as as weight. Uh, And when used in a metaphorical sense, it means uh, uh, weightiness. It means a person's honor their greatness, their significance, their splendor. And so when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it means the weightiness of God is the transcendent and holy one. 
Think about those moments for a minute when maybe you're standing before a majestic mountain, a magnificent sunset, and you're overcome with a tremendous sense of awe. Those kind of moments are an experience of glory because you find yourself face to face with something that is vastly meaningful and significant. So much so that the weightiness of that moment takes your breath away. And hence the glory of God is that infinite weightiness that he possesses, his supreme greatness, majesty, and splendor as the eternal one. And Paul gets at this idea of what it means for God to be uh, the supreme glory in a way that might seem very strange for us. Uh, He describes God as the father from whom every family on earth and in heaven is named. And maybe you know, if you've read this passage before, if we were reading it this morning, you kind of think, huh, what what does that mean? That's not the way that I usually think about God as being the one who names uh, the people on heaven and earth are named from. Uh, But it likely strikes us as odd because in the ancient world, unlike today, a name was more than just a way of identifying people. Uh, Your name encapsulated your significance as a person. It was your reputation, your honor, your greatness. And bestowing a name on someone signified your power over that person. So for instance, you think of how kings would bestow titles on their subjects, uh, which demonstrated that all power and glory in the kingdom was, was theirs. It was theirs to possess. And so everyone else's glory in the kingdom was derived from their own glory as the king. And so what Paul means by this, um, perhaps unusual statement here, is the significance of every single creature ultimately finds its ultimate reference point in who God is and in nothing else. And so therefore, whatever glory belongs to creatures is only a reflection of the intimate and eternal God who is the origin and source of all glory. And so if you want to understand what it means to confess that God is glorious— Look at the greatness and beauty and goodness of the entire visible and invisible world. Take all of its splendor and majesty and then fathom how God's glory is the infinite and eternal consummation of all those things. If the mountains can overawe you, how much more can their maker? In loving you, Augustine asked God in his confessions, what do I love? No physical beauty, no temporal glory, no radiancy of light that commends itself to these eyes of mine, no sweet melody of songs tuned to every mode, no soft, soft, sweet scent of flowers or ointments or perfumes, no manna, no honey, no limbs that can receive corporal embrace. Yet I do love some kind of light, some kind of voice, some kind of fragrance, some kind of food, some kind of embrace when I love my God who is light, voice, fragrance, food, and embrace to my inner man. There it is that a light shines on my soul that no place can contain, a sound is uttered that no time can take away, a fragrance cast that no breath of wind can disperse, a savior given forth that eating cannot blunt, And there clings to me that which cannot be torn away by satiety. This is what I love in loving my God. 
And so the secret, Augustine is saying, to finding inner strength and overcoming anxiety in life is ceasing to place all of our hope and trust in temporal glory and instead to see through these things, standing behind them all, the glory of the eternal and unchanging God. So that's what it means to have inner strength. Now, secondly, how do you get this inner strength? Well, the climax of Paul's prayer is that ultimately he asked that Christians would be filled with the fullness of God himself. That is, Christians would be filled up with the plenitude of God's glory. His goodness, wisdom, and beauty, and love would reside within their very being. And so thus you gain inner strength by having this king of glory come up and take residence within your soul by uniting your own inner self to God's own self in complete union and communion with him so that the glory of God becomes your own glory. But that just begs the question, how do we connect our souls to God? How are we united to him? And this is harder than we think because it's not simply the case, uh, as it is perhaps in in some other religions, uh, that it's through a tremendous exercise of our own spiritual energy that we can accomplish this uh, communion with God. And that's because the problem is not simply one of how finite beings can can connect with the infinite one, rather opening up a far greater chasm than that that would exist between the creator and creature is the separation that sin creates between human beings and God. As Paul says in Romans, all mankind has fallen short of the glory of God. I want you to take a moment to think about what Paul is saying in this statement, because uh, this verse from Romans is another one of those verses that we can pass over without thinking about too deeply because it's so familiar to us. But what Paul is saying here is that human sin keeps us from experiencing the glory of God that we so desperately long for, effectively alienating us utterly from the source of all of our life's beauty and meaning. Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, describes the experience of hell as the fearful consequence of being estranged from all fellowship with God, and not only so, but feeling that his majesty is averse to us while we cannot possibly escape from it. I think that we all have experiences of this kind on a smaller scale in relationship to other human beings. Um, Think about those experiences you have where you meet someone who is an incredibly good person, very generous, and next to them you feel like you're the worst human being on the face of the earth. Or maybe uh, it's someone who's incredibly, incredibly smarter than you and you just feel like you're dumb. Uh, Is there a beautiful person in your life that makes you feel ugly? Standing next to perfection makes our imperfections all the more visible and clear. And we experience in those moments really what is the pain of judgment, the public acknowledgement of all the ways that we fall short when measured against greatness. And so accordingly, God, the greatest of all beings, has been called by some scholars of religion the mysterium tremendum. The Mysterium Tremendum, a Latin phrase which means the transcendent mystery that we tremble before in those rare moments when we are fully and painfully aware of the presence of the Holy. 
perhaps nowhere in the Bible is this kind of experience better portrayed than in Isaiah chapter 6, when when Isaiah experiences a vision of God in his holy temple. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, surrounded by celestial beings who chant holy, 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 unceasingly before his presence. And Isaiah, in this moment, is overwhelmed with fear. He cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Like Isaiah, if we were to come face to face with the glory of God, we ourselves would be undone. Because if we are truly honest, to be united to the glory of God, to be united to such consummate perfection, is something that we cannot only not imagine, but also something that if we are terribly honest, we do not want. To be filled with the glory of God means to be filled with that holy fire that burns within the very marrow of our sinful selves. And yet what Paul describes for us here in this prayer is the possibility of not only momentarily tasting that glory of God, but to be filled with the very fullness of him who is altogether glorious. Not, he says, because we have somehow attained that glory, but because God himself has given us the gift of that glory out of the riches of his glory through his Holy Spirit. Paul tells us earlier in this very chapter that we who were once cut off from God and exiled from his presence have been brought near and are even now being built together into a dwelling place of God by his spirit. And so what Paul is saying here that is fundamentally the mystery of grace is that we do not ascend to God. Indeed, we dare not ascend to God, the Holy One. But that God in his mercy descends to us through his Holy Spirit of peace. And specifically, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, he works faith within us. Now, what is faith? Well, you can think of faith as being uh, the fundamental orientation or disposition of the human heart. And so everybody has faith of some kind because everybody is ultimately putting their trust, all of their belief, in something. Everything we do is a pursuit of some kind of ultimate good that we long for because we think that it will provide our lives with that ultimate meaning and significance that we yearn for. On the most basic level, right, all of our actions are directed at the very least towards acquiring the, the basic necessities of life, things like food, shelter, and security. However, we don't desire these things for their own intrinsic value, right? We use these basic necessities to lay the groundwork for our pursuit of more abstract goals in life. We want a job that not only provides, but also a career that satisfies. We long not just for shelter, but for a home, a place where we feel comfortable, like we belong. And from there, we seek still higher and more abstract things, some sense of ultimate peace and meaning for our lives that we desire to attain from all these things. And so all of us, therefore, are implicitly putting our trust in something that will provide us with this highest good that we desire. But the faith the Holy Spirit imparts to us is not a natural faith that puts its trust in natural things. Rather, it's a supernatural faith from God which comes into our very soul and reorients it so that it connects us to the highest and most transcendent good of all, 
God himself by enabling us to receive God's own son, who is God incarnate in our world. And to receive the son simply means to bind ourselves to him through this faith so that he may dwell in our hearts by this faith. And thus, the Spirit can make us truly into the dwelling space of God by giving to us the one who is the fu- in whom the fullness of deity already dwells bodily. Through Christ, we are made fit to receive the glory of God because he himself, in his flesh, has already accomplished this communion for us. Christ is the great act of condescension on God's part, whereby the glory of God came down to us in human form. Indeed, this glory bore our own dishonor and guilt on the cross for us, thus removing the dishonor and shame that caused us to fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, through Christ, we come to know God as the God who has drawn near for sinners. Because of him, we experience God not only as the mystery before whom we tremble at the splendor of his holiness, but the one with whom we find ourselves pulled into an ever more intimate relationship with, not by our own desiring or choosing, but because of his. Through Jesus, the mysterium tremendum has drawn near to us, revealing God to be love itself, the majesty and splendor that is not only with us, but also for us. St. Augustine said that God is higher than our highest and yet more inward than our innermost self. In fact, the only metaphor that the Bible can find to do justice to this intimate relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ is the metaphor of marriage. Just as a husband and wife become one flesh in holy matrimony, so we become one flesh with God incarnate through the bond of his Holy Spirit upon us. And because of his intimate presence in our lives, the knowledge of God that Christ imparts to us is not merely a doctrinal knowledge of a God who is far away, but experiential knowledge of him who is intimately close to us and whom we know in a deeply personal way in our lives. Through our faith, we grasp here, Paul says, the breadth and length and height of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Indeed, Paul puts this reality in a way that is paradoxical. He says that when Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, we come to know that love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. We know that which surpasses knowledge. That is, through Jesus Christ, we come to know that infinite knowledge of God's love for us, which is itself unknowable. The theologian John Murray once wrote, it is necessary for us to recognize that there is what he calls an intelligent mysticism in the life of faith, of living union and companionship with the exalted and ever-present Redeemer. He communes with his people, and his people commune with him in conscious and reciprocal love. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold, metallic ascent. It must have the passion and warmth of love and communion. And so our union with Christ is an intelligent mysticism, Murray says, because it does not involve a a, a surrender of our mental faculties. That's the intelligent part. It's not irrational, but rather it's something that is hyper-rational. Our union with Christ is also mystical because it is an experience in which we can truly taste the love of God even while we are unable to fully comprehend 
its immensity. W.H. Auden, who was uh, an acquaintance and also an admirer of J.R.R. Tolkien, describes this resting in the loving presence of God beautifully in his poem, For the Time Being. He says, And it's because of his visitation, that is Jesus Christ, we may no longer desire God as if he were lacking. Our redemption is no longer a question of pursuit, but of surrender to him who is always and everywhere present. Therefore, at every moment, we pray that following him, we may depart from our anxiety into his peace. You see, when the glory of Christ is always and everywhere present, even in the most deepest recesses of your soul, then you can depart from the anxieties that arise from this transient life and find strength and peace in his ever-present glory with you. So quickly as we close, how do we practically find the peace of our own lives? How do we apply this in a way personally to our own lives? Well, first it means that like Paul, we must pray that God would strengthen us with faith through his Holy Spirit. Inner strength can only come from deep and fervent spiritual prayer, as Paul is modeling for us in this passage. And secondly, it means that with the faith that the Spirit gives us, we need to be in a state of constant meditation of the, of the, of the God who is present to us in Jesus Christ. We must meet him where he speaks to us in his word. And it means that when we hear him speaking to us in scriptures, we must hear him as a person, as someone who seeks fellowship with us, who has sought us out, and to receive his word to us in faith in such a way that it radically reorients our life around him. When you experience Christ in this way, when you are mindful of his presence and love and word of peace to you, then you are able to go through everyday life with the sure knowledge that whatever disappointments or grief that come, nothing can separate us from the love of God who is with you, who is for you, now and forever. Amen. Please pray with me. God, our Father, we pray uh, that in our passing moments this week that we would gain an awareness of you, not only as the great mystery that is before us and uh, comes into contact with us everywhere, but also as the one who has come down to us to meet us in our weakness with the love of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would transform our hearts and minds, that we would be fixed on you this week and every week through the grace and mercy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.